Jeez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood? Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. When Arsenal knocks on the door of players, it's a different knock than other clubs. Clubs, clubs, clubs. The Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. But what made you so sure that this was the best place and this was the right decision for you? It's Arsenal, you know. Come on, it's Arsenal. Welcome back to... Oh, he used to play for Arsenal. He won a trophy once. And when Jorginho hit it, it went in off his bonds. He came up for the corner, conceded once again. Oh, dear Emmy Martinez, you are a fucking non... I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Welcome back to the Different Knock and Arsenal podcast with Alexander Moneypenny and my very good friends. Bradley Adams. And George V. I've been trying to think, lads. It's like a sort of what, what those things used to do, like the, you know, the little bit of paper that you'd fold and you'd like go back and forth and it'd be like, yes, no, or whatever. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? What yeah. are they called? Yeah, yeah. Those things? I don't know. Those little triangle chance things. Finger puzzles. Finger puzzles, yeah. think, whatever they're called. <laughs> Imagine doing a finger puzzle and trying to find the, the best combination or the funniest version of a goal for Arsenal. I think this would be up there. The only the oh, only yeah. funnier thing would be like him getting injured in the process. Not seriously injured, but do you know what I mean? Like a sort of, you know, one that <laughs> Like sort a rolled of, ankle or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, he's, back, he's back for the next game. It's up there as one of the funniest moments I've ever had as a fan, I think. It was just... Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a top comedic sketch, you know, when you think about it. Off the noggin, in, in behind, and he doesn't really know much about it either. Molly Python could not have written it better. Monty Python could not have written the last 18 months better for his ego to have been for a man. And it's not even when you take away the history of him and Arsenal, right? For a man who prides himself on being such a bad winner, like a horrendously bad winner, not gracious in victory at all, just the worst kind of person, right? For it to happen to him against his old team that are currently on course to possibly win the league uh, literally the same i think i'm pretty sure it's the same week that he's given an interview saying he wants to win the champions league and he wants to win the biggest trophies and as much as, and he knows that villa are in a different place right now and hopes to be able to do it with villa and such such and such to give his old team the three points that takes them back to the top of the table you take in that whole narrative that whole arc honestly Playwrights could not have written it better. Monty Python have never done a sketch as funny. It's 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 scripted. The Premier League is scripted because of that one moment alone. It's, it's poetry in motion. Like ninety third minute. It's just it's crazy because I feel like of all his past performances, right? I think he's only given one really solid one nil in his kind of first appearance back at us. And then you you look at each subsequent appearance, he's given a clangor in each one of them, and it's just. I'm with you, Brad. Like, I, I think there's a fine line between arrogance and confidence. And he just, 
shoots the other direction of being a prick, really. Like, because I, I don't understand the animosity. He's almost purposefully trying to drum up some kind of rivalry with himself and other people. And he puts himself in a level that he's not in. It's kind of like that guy that basically brags that he's got the newest car and it's a Prius. And you're like, yeah. relax. <laughs> like, you know, it, it's great. You're enjoying I'm driving yourself. a Ferrari I bought 12 months ago. <laughs> what are you talking about? Honestly, yeah. the hilarity of it is, is that if he'd have just shut his mouth, he'd probably be starting for us right now. The Ramsdale transfer might never happen. He's definitely, do you know what I mean? He fucked it for himself. He could be, he could have been the goalkeeper between the sticks for Arsenal for this season. I'm not saying that things would have gone as well because he is nowhere near the level of Ramsdale. I've never seen the biggest self-sabotage, like ever. I've n- because where, also, where does he go? Because he's not at the level for any of the clubs that I think currently need a goalkeeper. You know, he's not going to go to... Uh, I mean, he's he's old as well. He's not young. It's not like he's 25, 26. He's in his 30s, I think, isn't he? So I have this feeling he goes to, to United, you know, there, there's always been a part of me that has felt like he, he may want to go if he, if given the opportunity. And if in fact, United do go in for him, he strikes me as that kind of player that he wants to stick to a very Adebayor vein-esque kind of person where he would absolutely go to a rival to really stick it to people because he's all about the theatrics of it. When you look at the penalty shootout at the world cup, he is about that narrative, but I find when it's turned against him, he's a bit of a crybaby. It's just a very fake posturing that's very weird. Too good. It's too good, man. Arsenal 4, Aston Villa 2 at Villa Park, uh, late winner. I find myself, boys, in discussion about this, and I'll come to you, George, first on this, saying the phrase, it's the type of win that champions do, or the you know it's the, it's the hallmark of title winners or whatever, this kind of win, this kind of late thing. And as funny as it was like that kind of taking the headline for me and that being my word of the game as well. I wonder what your take is on that because I I do think there's a truth in the idea that champions have to grind out results. I do think there's a truth in, in the idea that there's certain results in a season that come and you go, yeah, that's not necessarily, you know, like the United game felt like a a big deal for us. It felt like a, a, a real big emotional moment. Um, And this one, for some reason also feels like a sort of, a specific win that might spur us on. But the, the problem is we're kind, of, we're kind of trying to make a narrative ad hoc. And sometimes I think, you know, I mean, ultimately it's about how well you play football and, you know, okay, we, we did that. But do you think there is any truth to that, to the idea that champions do sort of win, win in this kind of way? Well, I, I think there's bookends and there's page-turning moments in a season. And I, I think this was definitely one, whenever you look at champions and you look at a successful team, you look at bookmarks to a season. What was the first phase, the second phase, the turning point? We as fans do this regularly when we do podcasts. We kind of just find a way to bookmark a moment in time. And, you know, this very much did feel for me a moment where we caught our mojo back. And, you know, I think in general, um, it wasn't perfect. I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, But that, for me, is the hallmark of a champion. When you know things are going well, you know that there are... Uh, consistent runs. It's great to say how great of a team you are, but then when you do go through a rough patch, you need to be able to say, listen, we responded, but not just in a fashion of getting over the line of an emphatic victory. And I think at as a whole, when you look at the quality of the second half, it was quite emphatic in terms of the turnaround. And I think some of the things that I love to see is despite a really tough first half, 
we responded within 10 minutes of the first goal. And that was something that we were doing earlier in the first season. And then now when we're kind of coming back into this game, I'm just seeing little tidbits that have returned. So the press was back, uh, not for the full game, but it was back with intensity. And it wasn't just from a big six title rival. It was from a moment when we were struggling. We've responded through conceding, going down, um, not just once, twice. And, you know, we went on to win the game. Like, those are things that you can definitely pick towards on a pattern basis that we were doing in the first half. And then after these kind of three games when we've really let ourselves off the hook, that is something that, you know, fans were questioning. And if you're going to question the mentality in those three games run, it only makes sense to kind of praise the response. And that is the mentality of this team. So I think you're spot on. I think we talked about it in the instant reaction. It felt like a moment. It really felt like something um, where tactics, you don't have to talk about it, gave you an emotion. And that really, for me, is kind of the turning point to maybe get us back on track because now you start looking at it. Emil Smith-Rowe, Reese Nelson back in the frame, Gabby Jesus coming back within the next week or two. It felt like a jolt in the arm that was needed of a laboring team that was looking for inspiration and found it again. Absolutely. And the thing is, is every season um, by fans is remembered by singular games and singular moments. We remember the 15-16 nearly winning the title season with that Welbeck header against Leicester. Like that's the moment that pulls out. And there's always a couple in every season, like, you know, Vanisroy missing the penalty in the Invincible season is a big one for that season. Uh, and if we do go on to win the title, like you say, there's a couple of games that will be um, moments that we remember. One will be this because of how hilarious it is, but not only that because of the massive swing in form. One will definitely be United at home, you know, the adversity from that game and winning. You know, there's the Spurs away result. There's a couple of big results in there that will cement this season as what it is. And to kind of also cement it as a moment in history, I have a fascinating stat for the two of you boys. Let me just check I'm still recording while I find it. Yeah, I am. It's uh, Arsenal have won a Premier League game. They were losing at half time outside of London for the first time since December 2009 when they won 2-1 at Liverpool. So that's the first time in over a decade that outside of London, this club has turned the result around being 2-1 down at half-time and winning the game. That will be known in the dressing room that will be known that that they're smart enough to use that as like a look at what moment you just pulled out for this club. And that is the, um, that's pouring petrol on the fire. You know, it's, it's a real moment that um, invigorates people. And it can also be a real moment of despair for the team chasing. I remember the Vinnie company goal against Leicester, that absolute belter that, um, where it looked like, you know, there was no way they were going to win that game. Everything wasn't going right. And then Vinny Company steps up and smacks that top corner. And if you're chasing and you're going, Jesus Christ, even in these games, they're still managing to just get through. That's a dent to your confidence, especially when it looks like at Man City at the moment. There's a lot of people throwing their toys out of the pram, player-wise, and there's a lot of people that don't seem particularly happy aura-wise on the pitch. I watched the whole 90 versus Forest. And there's lots of players there that seem a bit dejected by things. 
Yeah, um, and, and really quickly, yeah. Brad, like uh, when you follow that up, I think that was uh, City's lowest possession um, match under Pep, just following um, you know our game. And, and I just I, when you combine that with what's happened with City in terms of their squad turnover, I actually think there's been an underrated amount of turnover in that squad within this season. When you do talk about it, we've mentioned the Sterling, the Jesus change of the wingers, the profile, the adaptation to Holland. You look at Cancelo leaving mid-season. The replacements, there's been enough. Phil Foden, I don't think, has been an integral member of their squad um, that has previously been one. And, and I just see uh, a disunity. And when I look at Arsenal, um, despite going through such a tough time, I've never seen um, the squad or the team not believe. I think in after every performance that we've really struggled, there's been a response both in the media from our captain, either the Martin Odegaard, or when you start to look at how we celebrate Granite Xhaka running from the other end of the pitch to celebrate with a Jorginho um, kind of goal at the moment. It's just, it seems the team is pulling in the right direction. Sure, we stuttered. Sure, we needed a little bit up in the edge, but it seems as though City have been playing catch-up not just in the last couple games and not just in the last you know um, couple months. I feel as though that they've been catching up to restore that kind of aura and that unity all season. And there's been a bit of a stop-start feeling to their club. Whereas it feels as though, regardless of what happens this season, there's been a pull from Arsenal and the fans. And I just think that's been exemplified even in the renovations that's happened around the Emirates. The attempt to connect to the fans is the highest I've ever seen it. And that unity, I think, is what is pulling this team towards great things. And do you have to look at the adversity that we've gone through as well? Would City be anywhere near this title if... Holland was out for three, four months of the season, and if Rodri was as injury prone as Thomas Partey, would they be near chasing us right now? If they had, if they had had those moments happen to them, no, God no. Who's dropping in at six? An overweight, unfit Calvin Phillips, and Julian Alvarez is no slouch of a player. But they've tailored their whole system around the fact that Haaland will score fifty-five goals against the likes of. Bournemouth and Southampton so taking him out and they've lost so much on the wings I don't think it's ridiculous to say that they're they'd be much further behind than they've been kind of scratching up to we have really faced some adversity this season and we're still two points clear with a game in hand that's that's a real big testament to mentality as well that we're consistently fighting through these hard points I suppose what this all makes me think of is the idea of a champion or what makes a champion or what makes a champion in any situation, any sport, in, in, in business, in boxing, in, in finance and whatever. What makes someone who wins in that in a kind of competitive zone? And I suppose one of the biggest uh, hallmarks of people or organizations or groups who do that is the ability to come back from adversity, to be at the face of adversity and f either find a way or turn around something that is uh, appears to be not going in their favour. You know, you think about famous comebacks, you know, United and in, in the kind of football sphere, United 1999 or, you know, uh, Steve Jobs gets kicked out of Apple and comes back. And, you know, it's, it's what, you know, whatever, you, whatever story you want to go through, there's going to be some adversity and someone who comes back and, and kind of, uh, you know, believes in themselves and carries on is the, is the hallmark of a champion. But ultimately... In that, as much as that's a, a nice narrative and a, and a nice story, there is action in there. There is there is drive in there. Something that made these things happen. And I think if you look at the stats and you look at the game, we made our own luck. As much as we, you know, there's a mental side to this. We absolutely made our own luck. And I'm looking at our, our running XG at the moment, courtesy of Opta Analyst, 
And after the, the, the break, the second half, after Zinchenko's goal, I actually goes through the roof to the point where I appreciate Gabriel Martinelli's goal is probably about 6xG or something. But we end up with like 3 It's only 0.64. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. How? <laughs> it's only 0.64. I think because he doesn't, because, he, because he's still got space, it's something to do with the fact that he's not exactly directly on the goal line. There's, he's like, there is a defender in like, close-ish proximity it's just a weird staty thing but yeah it's not it's not so as in like you take that away and we're still looking good on the xg from yeah but regardless we're you know i'm looking at it and i and i'm and i'm really looking at the game and i think we made our own luck and you know for example like the 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 saka goal comes from a sustained period of pressure where the wide triangles are working where we're playing nicely it's not it's not box office stuff we're not you know making chance after chance after chance but we have a sustained period of pressure where we keep we're holding onto the ball we're getting it wide we're recycling it back we're trying to find some invention and the ball just drops to us the ball drops to Saka and he gets that goal and that and that happens and i want to focus on the positives before before we come to um uh the 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 sort of the you know points of improvement george um but i do think for all of our goals we did make our own luck we, you know, there was a sustained period of pressure before the Zinchenko goal. That we had a, a sustained period of pressure before the, the Jorginho goal. And as much as those goals are, yes, okay, moments of individual brilliance and would have been characterised as such. And I felt as though the BT Sport commentator was sort of going through this all these, you know, just these great moments of individual brilliance. Actually, what I saw was a team who weren't making loads and loads of chances, but actually, okay, through individuals and through a sustained period of pressure, managed to get it over the line. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think when you have a look at like that first goal, I think one of the biggest things that we saw was the return of that um, kind of dynamism from the overlap in terms of Ben White, um, who was slowly getting into the game, who I thought had an excellent game generally. Um, I, I've always loved Ben White in terms of his potential on that overlap, but I felt that that dynamism and forward thinking wasn't there previously. Um, and it's just a great strike from Bukayo Saka in terms of where maybe it's a little bit lucky where the ball does fall, but at the same token you have to expect that your opposition is going to be marking up in the middle of the box. It does fall kind of smack dab in the middle of the penalty box. So you have to take your chances, and it's a clean strike. It's an instinctive strike, and it's one that's true to being on um, on net. And then that's not something that you can always say of Bukayo Saka, by the way. It's something that he's had to work on in terms of his ball striking technique. And so I don't think it's as simple of a volley that we see right now. It is a moment of brilliance, but it's a moment of calm in the final third. And what was the question that we kept asking against Brentford, Everton, Man City even? You need to be efficient in the final third. Well, we've got the opposite end of the story in this very game where it was maximum efficiency in those final moments. And so I I think when you do have a look at it, um, we'll talk about maybe some of the difficulties that we faced in terms of what we maybe weren't doing correct kind of in the first half. But um, primarily for me, it came from the Ben White offering on the width in terms of he might be scapegoated kind of for the second goal, and we'll talk about it a little bit. But um, his kind of his understanding with Bukayo Saka is absolutely phenomenal, um, and you know a big part of that is due to his kind of cooperative superiority on that flank with him, um, and what he offers being able to eat up ground, but also provide a very uh, variable kind of crossing variety. That's something I don't think he gets enough credit for. I think he has the half space cross in his locker, something that we don't see maybe due to the strikers that we have, but at the same token, he can deliver uh, an excellent cutback or a whip ball into the box. And I just think that variety um, that he gives us over there is what allows Bakayo Saka to be in the box. You know, his 
ability to take up that lane five means Bakayo is searching in the penalty box and he's not touch line whipping in crosses. And you know, it, it's simple, but you need to get your best goal scorers as close to goal as much as you can, really. That's the goal of any coach. Um, and I think some of the frustrations that we'd seen in previous matches weren't exactly doing that. Some We'll maybe talk about Trossard, but where do you get your players? Lane four, lane five? We know the structure is the same, but I think the orientation of who goes on the inside and the outside is something that's very key to adding some fluidity, both on the left, which may have had some troubles, but then when you analyze what went well on the right, I think Ben is just a huge part of that. And, you know, I think that's how we buy our luck. We put ourselves in a position to draw opponents out, and then you're left with space at the top of the box. By the way, that's not the only time that we've seen that. We've seen that in our corners. We isolate players deep in the box that leaves quite a bit of space from the penalty spot to the 18-yard box kind of bubble. And that, for me, has been a key portion of our attacking patterns, actually, where we force people to have a deeper block that opens space at the top of the box for a higher XG chance in reality. And we've seen it countless times this season, but I think it's not the only time. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and you know, just to back up, we had, in terms of the efficiency, which is something Arteta's been speaking about quite a lot, um, something he spoke about certainly post-City, I, I think in his pre-match for this one, certainly about being efficient, five shots on target, four goals. Uh, and I appreciate one of those was the Martinelli one. But, you know, this is there's a level of efficiency that we that we were showing uh, that was uh, that was encouraging. Brad, on the flip side, there was uh, certainly periods of the game where our deficiencies showed. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the goal. I have to uh, their second goal because I think their first goal, perhaps we could talk about that as well. But the, the, the second goal for them shows a bit more to me. Um, I think there's a couple of thing, things that are going on. I do want to flag Saka. I think Saka was struggling injury-wise, and I think the doubling up and isolation of White wasn't helped by that. But yeah, what did you feel? Um, you can talk about the goals if you want, but but what did you feel more generally in the sort of moments where our deficiencies were? Um, first goal's just, it's just good. We said this on the instant reaction. You've said it a thousand times. Sometimes it's just good play against you. Could Saliba show him a bit further on the outside when the ball's coming over the top? Yes, but it's it's a damn near perfect touch and a perfect finish. Sometimes moments are, like these are Premier League footballers, they're going to be able to sometimes pull out those moments of quality. So I, the only thing with the first goal is I think that Zinchenko taking three or four touches is what leads to it. And that's something that we need to understand when we have the space and time to do that uh, and when we don't. But that'll, you know, we live and learn. The second goal is more worrying. I think um, I, I often see Saka keeping uh, further up the pitch in in kind of defensive uh, moments because I think he's one of our fastest players, one of our best players and one of the players that if we're having a breakaway that you'd want with the ball. And it becomes a difficult conversation of would you prefer him to track back or the kind I of... I think he's injured. Six, seven times. I think times. he's struggling at that point yeah. as well. So may, may, I think the but conversation's then, there, but I also think he's injured. Even then, pre the injury, I, I've there's been a few moments down the right-hand side where I've gone, oh, could Saka not track back? Could he not be in that space? Um, and that's a toss-up because, you know, maybe seven times out of ten, eight times out of ten, we win the ball in that zone and you'd prefer to have him much further up the pitch for the breakaway. Um, Injury-wise, uh, it's it's worrying. Um the, the guy's ankles 
have got to be made of like hardened steel. Uh, and something um, needs to be done uh, in terms of, um, I tweeted this out about the Sabitza um, challenge in the Man United game today. And then um, I think it's Napoli's Mendy getting yellow carded for winning two tackles in a row and Rashford rolling on the floor. I genuinely think there is a big problem with unconscious bias and racism in terms of refereeing and football. Look at the profile of referees. They are all white. Look at the profile of the people governing them. They are all white. And you only have to look at the way that Jack Grealish, that Kevin De Bruyne, that other players who are white get refereed versus black players. It it is a problem. The amount of times you see Bukayo Saka get, you know, 10 bags of shit kicked out of his ankles uh, and nothing, nothing comes of it. No fouls, no nothing. But I'm watching Erling Haaland, who's meant to be this six foot five Norwegian robot, throw himself to the floor after a tussle and winning a penalty at the Emirates. Um, Or I'm seeing... Jack Grealish get a free kick from shoulder to shoulder challenges and things like that because he rolls on the floor and holds his face or or whatever. Um, that's that's where the conversation has to be. We have to protect the players. We have to protect Saka's minutes. I think I think that's something that we haven't been good enough at. But I think that there is a real conversation, which is probably a separate podcast. But and I'd love to know the statistics of it. But from the eye test, I think there is a real unconscious bias problem in the Premier League at the moment, and it's starting to to just wind me up because the only reason that Saka explodes at um, Alex Moreno and Philip Coutinho in the second half and the only reason that he will turn into a nasty player is because he's not being refed fairly and on an even playing field. And that's got to stop. We have to have standards. I also think there's a part of a big club gaining their respect back and their aura back. Um, We may be challenging for the Premier League, but we haven't for... How many years? Oh, maybe a decade in reality. Uh, maybe 2015, 2016, you could say. We definitely um, had a challenge with Leicester. But beyond that, we haven't been consistent title challengers. Arsenal have been the end of jokes for a very long time. And I do think that there's a little bit of a portion of a club getting their authority back as well. Um, and those star players becoming a bit arrogant. You know, we kind of touched on it even in the instant reaction. I want Saka not to be the nice guy. He wasn't the nice guy. And in fact, when you look at his celebration, a little ode to Thierry Henry with the corner flag, I loved it. It was arrogant. Yes, um, I need him to be a little bit more like that. Um, and there is a problem in terms of how um, we get refed, for sure, because I think you can see it in the frustration with Mikel in terms of how he's responding to the referee kind of mid-game that gave a great spot of him with the time-wasting. You can tell that there is animosity between the club and the PGMOL, you know, just in general from this season, how many times have we been uh, fined for surrounding the refs when it's been something that only we seem to be carded or fined with? There is a divide there, and it can be used against you in a good way, or it can be used in a bad way. I I think the biggest thing for me is when you do have a look at that second goal, while, you know, Bukayo Saka is definitely nursing an injury, I'm frustrated with the midfield line in general. It's far too deep. Um, when you have a look at how much space Kamara has afforded to kind of break out and build up here, the, the line between our front line and our midfield three is far too large. There's about a 15 to 20 yard space before somebody can engage Kamara. And that's just not on. I think one of the best things that we've done this season is going man to man, but making sure the spacing between our 
middle third, and our attacking third is tight. And if you increase those distances, you increase the amount of space that you give your opposition, that's where the real mistake for me fundamentally gets through, because even if Kamara breaks through our first press, ideally, Martin Odegaard should be the one stepping up to meet Kamara. And then on the wing, we should have Ben White very tight. We haven't really quite seen that one-to-one, man-to-man press in this goal. That, for me, is the biggest um, maybe deficiency, let's say, because we haven't been intense enough in our press. Whether that's fatigue, an injury, I kind of look at the entire team. We needed to press up and kind of meet Kamara a lot higher up in the pitch, and I just didn't quite see that, at least for the goal. Um, And it was very uncharacteristic. I don't think we've seen many times our line um, so open or the team so open in space. So uh, I I don't want to critique it too much, but much in the same way we said the same thing about our set pieces against Everton where we're like, we're being undone by a set piece. I hope it doesn't continue. And it did. I just think we need to make sure that we're a little bit more intense in our in our lines in midfield and attack. Make sure those are tight. Even if you don't meet your marker, no problem. But don't make your middle third hang out with your back line. That's not something that we've done all season. In fact, that's something we did last season that I think frustrated me. So um, just make sure that we're all um, intense to meet everybody's marker. Because if you do that, you actually run less. There's that famous adage that a coach always says, I know that you're tired, but run now so you don't have to run later. And close it in 10, 15 yards so you don't have to run 20. So, Yeah, and Xhaka gets megged by the, by the dummy, which is just so stupid. Because if you're going to stand in that position, you ha- like, you're there to intercept the ball. You're not going to be able to tackle Buendia. You, like, you're, you're not close enough to him. So why are you sta- standing there with legs fucking wider than the Great Wall of China and getting megged by it? <laughs> It's such a good piece of positioning, and then he just switches off. It's so annoying. Before I return to that, I, I want to come back on something you said, Brad, because I, 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 I would be interested in a study on unconscious bias. I'm not ruling it out. I don't think it's necessarily a foregone conclusion, but I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't rule it out. I, I do think there's a problem in terms of there's a sort of acceptance that wide players are going to get fouled. It's like, well, you play there. So, you know, you're going to be drawn. And I get that to some degree. It's like, there's going to be certain players who just get fouled. It's like Wolf Zaha. It's just going to be foulable by the way he plays. But I also think there has to be some kind of conversation of going, okay, but where is the line on that? Because it just, it gets to a point where teams, basically their entire game plan is just to kick Saka out of the game. And and, and at some point it is a, it is a concern. I think, yeah, I, I agree with you, George, on the, on the line thing. I think basically when we were at our best, we were moving the ball quickly, the distances were good and the opposite was true when we were at our worst in this game. But thankfully that those periods weren't too long. But I want to point out three people that kind of make that goal happen to me and I'm, and I'm watching it back now. I think Jorginho basically doesn't engage. White gets sold a dummy on the, on the, on the, on the, on the far-hand side by, I think it's, is it McGinn who passes it in? Uh, and then it's a really nice dummy from Buendia. And as Brad says, Xhaka gets done. But I think like Jorginho White, we know Jorginho is the kind of player who isn't necessarily going to engage. Isn't That's not like the, his favourite part of the game. And, you know, I think we're always going to have situations with White where we understand that, you know, he has a lot of great qualities, but there are, you know, he, his defending in wide areas is generally good, but he's not 
he's not been a right back for 20 years. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, there's just going to be, there's going to be situations that he's in that he will learn from. Um, and it's a really good bit of wing play. So, you know, I, th- I think there's a, there's a certain element of it that I'm willing to put down to just personnel as well. Um, personnel in the situations. And, and often what happens in these, in these, these types of goals is there's like four or five mistakes in a row, one of which you can get away with, but three or four or five in a row, you, you, you just can't. Um, yeah, I th- I, th- I think we- I think we've done it on the on the on the deficiencies we have because to be honest, as I say, I I saw a lot of a- a- antipathy on social media, which I understand because we were losing and and whatever, but I I just didn't feel that. I think sometimes like I I find it really bizarre when people like watch the game and also like are just like scrolling through Twitter, basically like finding out what they need to think. And I'm like, I'm such a big fan of just like watching 45 minutes and then engaging with that because like you need to form your own opinions to be able to, to go into to that sort of narrative minefield. And I felt we were we were playing fine. I, I felt like we needed a little bit more uh, from almost everyone. But I, I want to point out some uh, some 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 things that I really liked. Uh, I thought Gabriel is passing again. I mentioned it on the interaction. Get both Gabriel and Saliba. Their passing is 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 so intelligent. Um, if you Chossard haven't got the hint pretty... yet, sign up to Patreon for the instant reaction. <laughs> yeah, we had such a good time over there, didn't we? Oh god, it was so good. <laughs> and there's like free coffee and everything. Um, yeah, it's I I, I, uh, I yeah as I said, I really liked uh, Gabriel and Saliba's performance. I thought their passing was really good. I thought Jorginho did well, um, and he he added a, a couple of extra passes that that Partey doesn't have. He, he obviously has different skill a different skill set, but that ball over the top um, was really nice. There was one one point where I think Jorginho passed to I wrote it down. Oh, it was a ball over to Ben White, I think, at the back post, and Partey just doesn't tend to do that. And it was nice to see that a uh, different dynamic. Um, Trossard had a really nice safe pair of feet, but I just felt that there was the pitch was a bit slow. And we weren't quite, um, we just weren't quite at the races. But as I say, I like, I, I, I'm interested in your take on this, George. I think sometimes what happens is you look at the result and you go, well, we must be playing bad. And I was like, to be honest, I thought we were fine. And then the second half, we really stepped up. So that first half for you, I mean, wh- what were you feeling like? What was the, what, yeah, what was your overall take on the first half? Um, I, I thought it was uh, tweaks and it was it came down to intensity. Like the, the worst moment resulted in a goal with big spaces, but you're not asking us to change generally structure. You're not asking a player to, to, to be taken off from a sub from playing horrendously. I felt that, you know, Zinchenko, we talked about it briefly with the goal. He was somebody that was still dallying a little bit on the ball. He wasn't as vertical as he was in the second half, a completely different performance. Martin Odegaard um, turned it on in the second half. Like when you're talking... The differences oh, between terrific. first and second. We're talking about a player that was releasing early, that was vertical. Um, he didn't change what his role was doing. He was just more aggressive in his approach. And I, I think that just, kind of... Just on that, said, Martin Odegaard created seven chances for teammates yesterday, the most by play in a Premier League game for Arsenal since Meza Ozil with eight against Newcastle in December 2017. Yeah, it, he was incredible. He, he reminded me of the 3-3 West Ham performance with that second half, you know, where... He was kind of a, a okay in the first, and then he turned it on to a very landmark performance that everybody loves to cite for good reason. Um, it was similar. He was almost an extension of this Arsenal team. It was just, I was with you, Brad. Like I feel as though that there are people that are armchair supporting at the moment, where um, the idea of the title means if you don't win 2-3-0 in the first 5-10 minutes, it's a poor performance. Or if you're not um, dominating play with 
tons of chances and you don't have goals to show for it, um, then it's a poor performance. I, I wasn't with that kind of narrative. I felt as though, um, look, the left-hand side still has issues. There's still deficiencies. I do think that Mikel needs to have a, have a think at least while Jesus is out for the next game or two in terms of how he wants to approach it because um, he didn't really change anything in the second half. We just changed how aggressive we were. Uh, you mentioned Trossard being neat. Uh, he was neat, but also he was very aggressive in making the switches from the wing out to Saka to have an isolation for him. He was doing that all game, and it was excellent. Um, but, you know, Airpot Albert, there was a really great snippet kind of in the second half where he's screaming at Trossard to stay wide Leo. And um, But I think that's part of the problem. Like, this is something that I do disagree with the coaching staff on. Why are you asking Trossard, in terms of his profile and type, to occupy lane five like that? If you want width, which is no problem, um, you should be getting a player that's more conducive to that zone. And so I think that we are still struggling to find the balance there. And if you're going to become aggressive and you're going to start playing with a little bit more technical security, i.e. Zinchenko, then you can hide some of that flaw where you're going to see some interruptions between who's going to lane five and who's going to lane four. That still is a problem. But I do think it's just a matter of how you approach with your intensity. If you just up, send a little bit more of a message on your pass, be a bit vertical, don't try to play kind of the safe option, keep your distances tight, you're going to see a difference between the first half and the second. I don't know if I saw a change in structure, just approach for me in terms of how aggressive people were being. It's what I said earlier. It's like we moved the ball a bit quicker and we were a bit more intense and and, and that was the only real difference to me. It's like I, I feel as though people, of course, it's an emotional game and I 100% understand that. But I think what happens is it kind of blinds the narrative about the game and people start saying, oh, we were terrible in that first half. We really couldn't get out, whatever. We had one moment of of, of poor defence and they they punished, we got punished for it. And there was probably a period where I felt like we were playing to Saka a little bit too much. Other than that, I thought we were pretty good, and then the second half we really stepped it up. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad you you, uh, you you sort of align with me on that, Brad. Yeah, I mean, I think that we were fine in the first. I think we were fine throughout this game um, because I think that there were poor moments in the first half, and I I mean that from a setup sense rather than a play sense. We have made no tweaks to fix the issues that we've been seeing for kind of three, four games now, and that was a worry um, because if we're going like for like, we aren't going to, we're, we're not going to see the structure that is currently seeing the left half space uh, and that left-hand side really struggle change because it's, it's, it's the same pegs in the same holes. It's the same ideas. And I think that that's one thing that needs to happen is when we play with Gabriel Jesus because he is so wonderful. And I think this is also why we were better in in creation when we had him, because there was a lot more unpredictability about who was in what lane. Sometimes Gabriel Jesus would be in lane five and um, Xhaka would be in lane four and Martinelli would have gone to lane three and such. And there would have been much more kind of positional rotation. I, I don't know if I've done that the right way around but and we've lost that but I think what we now need to do is 
make more of the rotations between our left winger and if it's going to be Xhaka on the inside, we need to have moments of difference where Xhaka goes on the outside. Otherwise, we are just becoming far too predictable that we keep the wingers out wide, hope they can come in and do hero ball. And at the end of the day, Bakayo Saka's on 17 goals and assists this season. He is possibly our best finisher right now. Um, we need him as close to goal as possible. And it doesn't really make sense to me to be consistently putting him out on that lane, out that wide, as much as it might help us structurally in some moments to really spread that pitch. We're asking him to go through two players. And then by the time he's gone through two players, there's a third one right in front of him ready. And that is often where I think we're lacking in chances because we've lost that that kind of float amongst that front five because of the lack of Gabriel Jesus and because Eddie only really takes up maybe two of those lanes. I've only ever really, really seen him in the middle lane or just to the right. Uh, you never really see him really far out one way or really far out another unless we're fast breaking. And that's um, a bit of a problem that we we do need to resolve. Uh, I don't know how we resolve that, especially without Thomas Partey, because I think that a lot of the conversations that we've had about possibly putting Zenchenko in midfield, we'd need Thomas Partey at the base for, because otherwise, you know, Jorginho, Zinchenko and Erdegaard is is a very bullyable midfield. Um, but the game for me really hinges on the substitutions in the second half. And I think... I mentioned this on the instant reaction. What that did was it gave us more space. We found that space and we've criticised the mentality, but we had the mentality and the opportunity to take that space and do something with it and really kind of kick on. Um, and props to the players for having the mentality to do that, you know, come back twice. And then at 2-2, those substitutions come and that opportunity comes. And I think at points we've played with fear over the last three games. And I think we, we we stuck our chests out and we were there to be counted and we we really, really just played some fucking great football, which I've not seen in a while. And one thing on the goals is, you know, we'll have the conversation that, you know, it's a Martinez own goal and then an open net for Martinelli. But you think of that, that Eddie Nketiah chance where he just takes it a bit too wide. We created lots of moments that if we score those rather than the ones that we did, it's it's a different conversation amongst armchair fans and amongst people who are scrolling for Twitter to find what they should think because it feels like we created and we took the opportunities rather than bits of luck giving them to us, if that makes sense. But the result's still the same. And it's like we mentioned on the instant reaction, so sign up to our Patreon so you can hear it first. Um... That pass from Fabio Vieira will go f uh, much, much underrated because we already have the narrative that the goalkeeper isn't in goal and it's an open net. That pass is perfect. It's perfectly weighted. It's perfectly through two players. It's brilliant. And it's exactly what was needed. And if Martinez is in net and Martinelli scores it, we're talking about a moment of brilliance just because... The, it was an open goal. It doesn't take away that that brilliance of technique to make that pass. Yeah, I, I think um, just really quickly on, I guess, the, the rotation point, because I've always said these two things. From a tactical point of view, 
you want to make sure that you're never predictable. I think I in one of my tweets that uh, I had made in terms of a summary from the game, I kind of just talked about how we had an early struggle between the lines, and, and it kind of remained. Our, our spaces were a little bit disconnected, and I felt that there were some predictable patterns that were occurring. And that, for me, becomes easy to defend. Um, and we know that the issues that oppositions have picked up on in terms of how dangerous our wingers can be, but... Um, when you talk about where people would like to go, I have talked about this, I think, in the instant reaction as well. Another plug. You look at instincts, <laughs> right, of a player. It's the episode of plugs uh, today, boys. It's the episode of the plug. <laughs> but you, you have to look at instincts of players and you have to understand how we can best complement them. Because um, I think it's very easy to say, let's put somebody in lane five in order to open lane four. Uh, but who would like to do that and how often is really the crux of the issue, right? Because when you talk about Gabby Jesus in terms of what he did, he simply would go to the widest overloads wherever the ball needed him to be and fill in the required zone. Now, we've got a striker that we know isn't doing that. So then that relies on your central midfielder, your winger, and your fullback as a pod to make up the difference if your striker isn't as freely moving as that. Now, who do you blame? Who do you not blame? I don't know if it's an individual thing, but it's about understanding who complements somebody best. So if you're set on maybe playing a Zinchenko with a Martinelli, you're asking your Granite Shaka, that's the duty for him to create the overlap. Or Zinchenko. But when you're asking those two players to do something that they're not comfortable in doing, you're going to get hiccups. You're going to get these spaces be a little bit more disconnected. Now, Again, I hate to bring him up, but if you asked a Kieran Tierney to play along with a Trossard, you're talking about a much more natural fluidity where both players like to operate in those lane five and lane four zones, respectively, as opposed to asking a player like Granit Xhaka, can he do it? Can he go wide? Of course he can. Would you like Granit Xhaka to be wide, necessarily, as your high and wide option? I don't know. Would you like Trossard? to be your high and wide option when you know he's so effective in the box and he's such an efficiency monster with his ball usage? I don't know. Is it the smartest use of those players? That needs to be the question. Can they do it? Of course they can. It, but that is why you end up getting maybe larger disconnects in your attacking patterns. That's why maybe the between-the-line chance creation has suffered in the last four games because you're asking players to do jobs they're not comfortable with necessarily. And I just think that we maybe need to be a little bit smarter in who we like to pair on both sides because then that's what opens up the freedom, the fluidity on the left and on the right. That's what it is. You just need two players that are comfortable in and out, both sides, constantly, and then teams can't isolate you. They can't pick apart your most dangerous player because they leave the opposite side vulnerable. So how do you solve that with the Thomas Partey? My biggest solution has always been to recognize what is it that Thomas Partey gives you and what is it that you can't replicate. Now, it's obviously his on-the-ball quality we've seen this season is immense, but I always focus on the defensive ability of Thomas Partey because that has been the difference in our season this year. The press, our intensity man-to-man, -man, and how we control second balls. That has been the key to our success. We aren't a team that are terribly individualistic, by the way. We, we spread our goals throughout our team quite well. I know Saka's having an immense season, but generally, when you look at what made us great, it was that defensive ability. So how do you replicate it? I mean, my solution has always been to stick a Granite Xhaka, who is a second-ball magnet. If anybody had a look at what Granite Xhaka did this game defensively, they would be shocked. I think most people came out of the game thinking he was done an okay job, 
But if you have a rewatch, he was an absolute magnet on defensive transitions, but particularly second balls. So for me, he solves one of the flaws that, you know, we have without a Thomas Partey. Stick him next to Jorginho, somebody who does struggle with that. Let Jorginho be the primary receiver. And of course, by starting Ben White, you now have a kind of midfield three that fixes what Thomas Partey gives you from a horizontal agility standpoint. So how do I meet markers wide? You look at the second goal. That doesn't happen with, you know, a Thomas Partey because we've got somebody that's quick out to the wing. And it allows people to be in zones that they like. So how do we try to stop it? Well, try to make sure that maybe Jorginho isn't the one meeting his marker. Make Ben step a little bit higher up. Make him as part of the middle three. And then when you start to go higher up the pitch, do we need necessarily um, a Zinchenko if we are asking maybe our left winger to hold the width? And we're asking Granit Xhaka to also similarly operate on the inside? I don't know. It seems you're asking players to step on each other's toes, and that's not necessarily the best use of them. So um, I, I think these are some of the difficult questions we may need to ask. And maybe sometimes our favorites, in terms of who's starting right now, maybe can't for the balance of the team. And namely, I'm talking about a Martinelli, who I think everybody knows how highly we rate him. But as long as we're asking him to stay on the outside and not support him and make him predictable, he's never going to be at his most dangerous. So why not put players there that we know can be dangerous in that lane, um, as opposed to maybe forcing the structure onto the players? That's been my biggest critique of Mikel and maybe the team right now as we search for a little bit more fluidity while Gabriel Jesus returns. Um, does that mean that we have to change everything? No. Um, it just means I wish that we had a little bit more um, thought in terms of which pairs work together. For, for example, in my mind, Trissard KT, that seems like a great pair. Uh, if I look at, you know, Gabriel Martinelli, him along with, you know, a striker that overlaps wide seems like a great pair. Otherwise, you don't get the best of Granite Xhaka in the final third. So don't do that. Get him deep. If you don't have a striker that is willing to do those wide overloads, keep Granite Xhaka deep where he's best. You'll still give him his second balls. But then maybe add a fullback that maybe allows your left winger to operate on the inside. Get him closer to goal. Um, those are solutions I think we can do in the absence of a Thomas Partey. Um, and of course, look, Emil Smith-Rowe back. Guys, I can't tell you how much of a difference his central running power will make and his ability to provide that wide overload. You're talking about a central midfielder now that provides that dynamic overlap and has the legs to do it. So it's not as predictable as it has been. We really don't have a central midfielder that provides that dynamic overlap. Um, Martin Odegaard tries. Uh, Granit Xhaka tries. But there's no one with the ability of Emil Smith-Rowe, uh, both in tight spaces, but in large sprinting spaces, to do what he does. He's going to be a game-changer while we wait for Gabriel Jesus to come back. Completely agree. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, George, and a lot of astute points. And I think, really, the, the, the concept is ultimately instruction versus personnel. And... <laughs> There's only so far instruction can go, and you know you can you can ask players to do things that they're not necessarily naturally comfortable with, as you say. But also, can there be times where we where we are braver with our personnel? I th I think there is. So so yeah, and you're I think you're totally right about Smith Rowe. I think he's going to be really transformative for us. Um, a couple more things before we go to news and views. Uh, I just wanted to highlight uh, Aaron Ramsdale's save against Leon Bailey because that keeps us in the game. 
I think it's one of those things where you you know conceptually that keepers can 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 get you you know whatever you know you could say up to ten points a season or two points a season whatever you believe that that stat is, um, but certainly he will save you some points per season and that is one of those. It's a fantastic save and fair play to him. I didn't think he had an incredible game, but but you know he was there in the moments that mattered, which is uh, which is important. And uh, I just want to come back to how funny the end was. I'm still not over it. Um, maybe how funny more. Unai Emery's interview was. And also, I feel we deserve to win that game purely based off Unai Emery's gilet. Do you see it? Disgrace of a garment. <laughs> Sort of rust-coloured, a rust gilet, Emery. A rust gilet, Unai. Brad, the we'll colour of you. his managerial skills. After this. Oh, jeez, Dad, not the car again. Oh, happens all the time with old Betsy. Have you checked out Carvana yet? They have thousands of cars for under $20,000. But do those thousands of cars have personality like old Betsy? Betsy's held together by tape. And there are raccoons living in the engine. It's a family car. Uh, there are flames on the hood? Ah, custom paint job. No, Dad, the car's on fire. How many cars did you say Carvana had? Visit Carvana.com to shop thousands of cars for under $20,000. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views, where we give you all the news and all your views, but mostly ours. Thank you to those who support us on Patreon, on patreon.com forward slash not Get access to ad-free versions of the main podcast, weekly Patreon-exclusive bonus podcasts. And guys, we may have mentioned this, but you do get the Patreon-only instant reaction for just £3 a month. Uh, speaking of coffee... Guys, uh, did, you know that we, did you know we have a Patreon? I don't know if we mentioned it, but we do. Uh, speaking of coffee for one-time support, head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash if not where you can. Buy me a coffee. Links are in the show description. Brad, answer in less than 20 seconds, please. Are United in the title race? No. Done. George, are United in the title race? They are not, no. I think they are. Sorry. They got, no, I'm sorry. They got abs, 15 seconds. They got, in that first 30 minutes, they were getting absolutely pillaged by that Leicester front three. And the fact that Brendan Rodgers couldn't even teach an obese person how to eat their dinner, like according to his coaching in that game, horrendous, horrendous levels of finishing, decision-making. They're nowhere near. They play the deepest line in the league. Um yeah they're they are not in this title race they'll go and they'll lose to like they'll probably lose to southampton or something stupid in two weeks time the, you know okay Just, you know what nah. you know what i will give united because again you said 20 seconds so i do want to keep on track here but uh they have the best attacker in world football on form right now um and it does hide quite a bit of flaws when you're talking about some of the structural issues that they're hap- that are happening right now with united um, one thing that I will say is you need to credit where they're at in terms of a position. Mathematically, if Manchester City are in a title race right now, of course, they aren't far behind. But I think in the manner in which they're achieving results is not sustainable, and they are relying on moments. And it's great to have that. And, and we've seen that with a new Emery team in the past and with Arsenal. But it's great to have output merchants and machines. But I do think in general, the way that they defend and the way that they uh, progress the ball up the pitch, particularly in build-up, they are far too easily pressed to be in a title race. Uh, it, it, you know, we kind of saw that with Barcelona, really, in, in their game. 
Um, they are definitely doing well in the position they are at, but they have far too many flaws to really necessarily stamp themselves as kind of favorites, I would say, personally. If you fix their build-up structure and how they're pressed, um, and you actually allow a little bit more support in their chance creation, I'd probably be there with you. But right now, I think having the best attacker in world football on form right now is hiding quite a bit. Um, so we may see a little bit of a drop-off, in my opinion, soon. That, yeah, I, I think the having the best attacker on form part is... is I think if, basically, I think if Rashford drops off, they're probably out. But I think, I think at the moment, having someone who is in the form of his absolute life, someone who has the talent level of Rashford, I think just does keep them in the race. And they do have flaws, but I also think they have uh, a number of... Uh, really solid qualities that Leicester's backline is so. pony anyway Leicester's backline is honestly Listen, just Brad, abominable can... Harry Souter playing the play both centre-backs at one point playing Rashford on side for a goal like just just so dog shit so dog shit well, we can bury our heads in the sand, but I think it's happening. Can't wait for them to keep a clean sheet next week. Yeah, it's happening. Question in from at Eddie Longbridge. Question Eddie asks is, I would like to hear your thoughts on our recent win over Aston Villa. Seems unlikely, Eddie, sorry. Uh, we have questions from <clears throat> David Fitzpatrick, who ask, ask, he ask, can I ask? He ask. Uh, David Fitzpatrick, ask. Arteta's touchline shenanigans. I don't see any issue with it myself, but that, that wasn't a racist. That was a Stathlet's Flats reference, by the way. Because I know someone's going to think that was some kind of... If you don't know Stathlet's Flats, fine, but there you go. Uh, do you know Stathlet's Flats, George? <laughs> I'm no, just crying at the I fact don't. that I'm trying to get myself out of racism <laughs> allegations. Fucking dig, 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 dig in your hole then, Oh, mate. my goodness. Dig, 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 dig. Uh, David asks... <clears throat> Can I ask, Arteta's touchline shenanigans, I don't see any issue with it myself, but is it in danger of becoming a distraction and becoming a something? A lot of agendas being created and it's being reported quite heavily at the moment. I think, I'll go first on this one, I think there is always got to be a problem. There's always got, because we cannot, especially in England, just be like, yeah, that person's really good. There's got to be, they're really good, but, uh, and I don't think it fits any, many people's agendas media wise in terms of their capital agendas and in terms of what they need. Because if, if the story was, yeah, Mikel Arteta's doing really well, well done. That's not a good story. Talk sports, Sky Sports, whatever, they need something. And he shows the exact same passion as Jose Mourinho and we can get drawn into long, boring conversations about, well, this person did this and that person did that. But I think the most important thing to remember is there needs to be a story and the only one Mikel provides other than being some kind of football genius is that always a bit animated on the touchline. If you have a problem with that, you know where I think you can go. But I think it's it's just about the fact that there needs to be something. There needs to be some kind of undercut for Mikel that, that I just don't I just don't see at all. All you have to look at is talk sport. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but it was a Brentford fan. It was a woman uh, presenting. And she was saying that she got really riled up and slightly offended by the fact that Mikel said, oh, well, why don't you give us our two points back then? Oh, because, you know, what, what, and she was saying, well, what makes you think you would have won that game? Like, I, you missed, missed the point entirely for one. And secondly, it was a draw. And if your only goal of the match doesn't count, funnily enough, like it's a, it's it literally is a win. So 
just, and this is what I mean. And I think this is also like, it's in this country, we have to sensationalize things. And especially when it's, um, look at, look at Potter, look at what's happening to Potter at the moment, because he isn't willing to do the angry, disgusted with his players shenanigans, uh, in post-match interviews like Jose Mourinho, they're saying, is he not, um, you know, strong enough for the job? Is he not the type of personality they need to deal with these superstars? But if they had Jose Mourinho in there throwing his players under the bus after every one of these defeats, they'd be saying Jose Mourinho throws his players under the bus again. Like there's no winning, there's no losing. Um, stop listening to rival fans. Klopp literally ran on the field and celebrated a goal with Allison. This is not a new thing. They don't like Arsenal. Arsenal are the newest team on the block to be doing well. And it's it's to sell you papers and it's to sell you clicks. Mainstream media like this is dying. Like the Daily Mail is dying. TalkSport is dying because people don't want to listen to their tribe. So what they try the to do is they make things media. inflammatory. The mainstream media. Unbelievable. They, they make it inflammatory to try and grab Michael my attention. Michael Arteta. And... He's so bad. <laughs> Does so many awful He's things so on the touchline. He can't, he can't build a structure. He can't build a defense. It, it's fake news. <laughs> I think it's fake, I, news. I, it's fake news. I think, but also what it's in David's news. question, he says it's in danger of becoming a distraction and becoming a something. If it wasn't that, if it wasn't this, it would be something else. There's got, there's got to be something. Yeah. Because that's what, I think that's fundamentally what's under it. George? The, the Daily Sun would be talking about Bakaya Saka buying a house. George is stupid. speaking. George is speaking now. Thank you. No, George's turn. <laughs> no, with uh, that. George, go ahead, buddy. George, why didn't you speak? George, I'm going to let you speak. <laughs> uh, look, guys, I think it's just, it's ridiculous. Uh, I will say when you have a look kind of at some of the criticism that's going on right now, it is rooted in the fact that, let's speak honestly and call spade a spade, nobody felt that Mikel Arteta was any good. I hate to be simplistic, but that is a big part of some of the salty jealousy at this point. With one of the mainstream medias, everybody ridiculed Arsenal's process. The entire idea of a PR process was mocked by superstars like Mesut Ozil. It was mocked by mainstream media. It was it was mocked for the most part. Why would you trust? Uh, why would you trust a young manager like that with no previous experience to come in here and turn a club around, a super giant, in the way that he has? By doing everything, by the way, that the media should love, a youthful recruitment setup, integrating youth. Wrong. Uh, it, all of the points of a really proper rebuild, uh, you know, are things that Mikel has done and yet he gets criticized. And I think it's rooted in the fact of a very bitter Gary Neville who does it best. He will refuse to admit when Arsenal or Mikel do, do well because he's gone so hard in the other direction. You have to almost continue the facade. To, to kind of keep space. In terms of the comparison with Jose Mourinho, name me another manager in world football that is at the top level or that is considered a genius that doesn't have a, a personality. And in fact, the people that we keep commenting on, I do think it's kind of a dichotomy from going to one of our uh, one of our managers who is definitely one of our best, but in Arsene Wenger, who basically was a philosopher who would not really talk too much in his latter years. Um Whereas in his beginning years, he was quite arrogant. I think people forget how arrogant Arsene Wenger was when he first came in. And, you know, it wasn't a rude in your face kind of way, but he had just as much personality as the next ones. And look, Mikel is just writing his story. As far as whether or not it affects us going into uh, games, 
of course. There's going to be moments like Liverpool, by the way, where him riling up the crowd will cause an opposition to gain kind of wind in their sails. Uh, uh, fundamentally, if you're relying on something like that to kind of impact your game, I feel as though that you've lost a much bigger part of your structure um, when you're yeah. looking towards yeah. those soft factors and you start claiming Mikel riled the club or, or the crowd up. That's why we lost a game, for example. Yeah, yeah, His yeah. antics are leading yeah. into referee biases. No, I, I think when you start doing that, you recognize your play wasn't good enough and you want to hang on to a piece that isn't the team's fault. So, no, I don't think yeah. it's a big issue. No, I, I completely agree. And I think the the only thing that sums this up is that you want to see the thing of troops where he um he put out like a if you don't if you don't if you're not with us when we're down, don't be with us when we're up. And he's literally Shameless. put out Arteta out t shirts. <laughs> but you know what I say to all of those people, Brad? You know exactly what I'm gonna say. We're gonna start winning again. We're gonna win so much. We're gonna win at every level. We're going to win economically. We're going to win with, with the economy. economy. We're going to win with military. With military. We're going to win with healthcare. And for <laughs> with healthcare. Veterans. We're going to win veterans. with every single facet. We're going to win so much, you may even get tired of winning. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My favorite, my favorite moment of that clip is where he goes, we're going to win with, economically. We're going to win with the economy as if they aren't the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't twig it. He doesn't twig it. We're going to win economically. We're going to win in the economy. It's the same thing. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to win the league and we're also going to be champions of England. <laughs> <laughs> Question from Alistair Brown. These are our patrons, by the way. Say hi. Interested hello, to see. Hello. We, oh, by the way, I don't know if we mentioned we have a Patreon. Interested to see your opinion on what profile we should use <laughs> in the left eight from next season onwards. There's been rumours of Rice coming in, and I'd imagine him being our long-term six. I think him coming in would allow us to play with a more attacking eight. Do we play Vieira or ESR there, or would you like to see a player like Caicedo for defensive structure? Uh, Scrambly, I'll come to you. Um, I think that. Uh, it's all going to depend on, and hopefully this is the next evolution. We're going to start winning again. <laughs> We're going to win. Hopefully this is the next evolution in, in, in Mikel as we see a bit more fluidity. I think it's going to depend who's playing at centre forward. Um, and I hope that if we have, if we sign another centre forward, you know, like like an Osiman or somebody who's a bit more of just going to score lots of goals it's going to really depend on on the profiles around them i think if he if if rice comes in it's not to play six immediately uh because he won't know how to in our system it will be to play eight probably um to replace granite jacka in that first 11 and he'll learn the system at six um and maybe we'll play him there for some europa league games and stuff but um I think the only the only reason that we're saying that we need a more attacking adventurous eight is because of the problems that we've had in our um, left on our left hand side. Um, because at the start of the season, when Granajaka was winning Player of the Month because he was like banging in the goals, it wasn't a problem. And I think Rice can do that Xhaka role to a much better level because he's got a better turning circle. He's more athletic. He's faster. He's younger. Um, uh, but he also has all of the good traits of Xhaka. And I actually think from a from a 
like from a technique standpoint, he's a better tackler of the ball. I've always thought about Xhaka that his tackling technique is all is just a bit rash and just a bit off. And the way that he tries to win the ball can lead to silly fouls, not because it's a rash moment, but just because of the way he uses his feet and legs to win the ball. And I think that that Rice is a bit more refined in that. So I don't see him coming into play six immediately. Um, but I would love in games where we feel comfortable and confident enough to drop Rice altogether and play Vieira and Erdegaard and have two or Erdegaard and Smith Rowe and have two really attacking eights against teams that we feel com- comfortable and confident in the transition against. But um, I think we just, that's hopefully Rice is just, if he does come in, going to give us a bit more fluidity. But with the injuries to Thomas Partey, I really wouldn't mind if, he, if we started thinking about that succession plan kind of quicker because, you know, if you look at the three seasons that he's been at Arsenal, he's missed three of the most important stretches of games in those three seasons. Uh, and that's a problem. Yeah, I, it, it's tricky because I always, I, I talk about groups and I and I, I believe in groups and I believe in having the groups with, you know, filling out the amount of profiles that you need and getting the right skill sets that you need in the right places at the right time. But ultimately 11 players play. So it's about finding a balance between that. And I think Declan Rice comes in and adds us, adds a great deal. Um, he is a little bit all action for me at times. I think he, he could be a little bit calmer, which is why I don't see his future um, <coughs> at uh, at eight, because I don't think he's quite got that sort of coolness in the final third that we need, but it's, he can certainly co- contribute in the final third. Um, I think he's he's more of an all phases midfielder and probably will find himself in that six long term. But I just, I suppose in the left eight, my preference and my sort of, um, my eye is always drawn to cute, uh, technical, gifted players. People, the, the sort of Bernardo Silvers, the sort of the, the, the David Silvers, the Thomas Rosickis, the players who can just, turn out you know Santi Cazorla's can turn out of a of a seemingly impossible situation and play a, a you know a, a slid pass through that that sort of profile I love I'm not sure Rice is that um and I'm not sure how how suitable Vieira is to that role I think we missed that so I don't know whether that's a, a another profile or it's a I don't think I don't think Patino's that Smithrow combines really well and he's good in tight spaces but I'm not sure he's quite that either so it's really difficult because that's what that's what my eye is drawn to so that's what I'd like to see there I imagine it will come in the sense that Martin Erdegaard will become our left eight and we'll have something different on our right hand side I think Erdegaard long term is going to be going to be our left eight and it's going to provide that cuteness um, and that sort of invention I then think we'll probably have Rice as our starting six at some point, and then we'll probably have something else at eight. And I hope that can be Smith Rowe in terms of the central running power that George talks about. But these are all the, the problem is, is 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 we're finding alchemy. We're finding like you know, if we have this player, then we need this. If we have if we have Erdogan on the left, then we need something else on the right. And this is the problem. You can't talk about it in terms of this player will be the player for the next ten years. I think you can only think about profiles and how those profiles might come into a three and I think like if I'm thinking ahead to next season I'm going like you know if it was like Partey, Erdegaard, Partey, Erdegaard, Jacker I think works and I think like a Rice at six, Erdegaard on the left and Smith Rowe on the right would really work but again you need to see it but yeah George your 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 thoughts on that? 
look, as someone that's peddled this Odegaard transition to kind of the left um, for quite a while right now, I think it really comes down to understanding balance. That's the one thing I will say, because um, I, I, everybody kind of knows me as kind of a pace and power merchant on Twitter. It's something that I like. My eye is drawn to that. I, I really do believe as a coaching fundamental, the first thing that I look for is physical in aggression and intensity in kind of tight moments. That's my my eye. Now, I think the biggest thing that you need to talk about when you talk about an Odegaard transition to the left is you have to understand what kind of wingers you're going to be pairing these central midfielders with. If you're looking for a more yeah, straight line runner, it makes it, it makes sense for me to pair that with a more controlling eight. That's why I've always peddled a Martin Odegaard with a Martinelli. That wing pairing makes sense. Why? Because Bakayo Saka is more a wide creator that he is a straight-line runner in the sense of a Gabriel Martinelli. Therefore, he requires a central midfield partner that's more of a dynamic overlap. Now, that can come from fullback or center midfielder, but he requires that overlap because he's a little bit more wide creator-y or 10-e in how he plays the wing, whereas Martinelli is more of a forward, a more straight-line runner, and so he requires that extra pause next to him in terms of a central midfielder. Now, all these things in terms of what Rice can become I've always said, I think for me, he's his ceiling is a six. Uh, we've all kind of said we see him as a transition from eight to six. But for me, the biggest question isn't necessarily asking what is Rice going to be, but what is Rice going to be in regards to who is his partner? And I guess that kind of goes off your point, yeah, uh, you know, Alex, in terms of who is going to balance who, what the what if. If you put somebody here, who is his partner? And I think that's how you have to look at things. One thing to also worth analyzing is uh, let's look at our upcoming talents, by the way, in terms of the eights and the tens that we do have at the club. I know they're young, but they are absolutely highly rated in terms of Charlie Petito. We mentioned briefly, Mile Lewis Skelly, who is one of my favorite players I've seen coming out of the Arsenal Academy. I rate that boy incredibly highly. Um, he's been rated along with Ethan O'Neary um, as one of the best talents that Hayland have ever produced, and I tend to agree. He is somebody that is absolutely going to have a, a say in the fold. But look at Charlie Petito and Maya Lewis Skelly and look at basically Granite Shaka. What do they all share in common? They are players that would like to ideally control an excellent passing range, but they pair second ball winning. What is it common with Casado? That's another 6'8", somebody who's very intense in transition. He definitely has on-the-ball qualities, but he is a second ball magnet. I think that that is going to be the focus of what our next midfield recruit will be, um, especially when you look at what Declan Rice and Casado have to offer. I think that is something that's very important to Mikel, and we almost seem to have some of the needle players recruited. I think uh, Vieira, another player that I've really loved for a while, he is somebody that at baseline will give you the minus touch. He is somebody that is going to, at baseline, make the difference in the final third through moments. He's going to be able to provide those slip balls. We haven't quite seen him, by the way. He really has played in moments. There's a lot to unpack with Fabio Vieira. And I think that when you start to look at kind of the midfield department, you look at Emil Smith-Rowe, Fabio Vieira, Ethan Neri. Those are your kind of eight tens. Then you have the next cohort, which is the Charlie Patinos, the Mile Lewis Skelly, the Granite Shaka, who won't be here long. Those are your six eights. And then you have a lone six. And and that's kind of going to be the general midfield makeup for me. Whether that's on the left or on the right, that's an up for a debate. But I think there's always going to be two midfielders that have physical aggression and intensity. And there's going to be maybe one more cute 8-10 in the long term. Now, can we have other game states where we have two of them? Absolutely. But I do feel that man-to-man -man pressing needs a secondary 
physical monster to kind of actually see through um, if, if you're looking at what Mikel prefers. Yeah. I think it was a game this season where Erdogan and Vera start together in the Europa League. I could be wrong. So he's he's uh, he's not averse to that. And I think, yeah, I think it's like the, the thing that comes to my head is like needles, needles, hoovers and treadmills. It's like needles for that sort of cuteness, the hoovers to get those second balls and treadmills to do the running for you. And I think if you can find a balance of those three, um, not necessarily to say, you know, one person can only be one thing, but, you know, to find a balance of those skill sets in the midfield, I think I think you're in a good place. And it can, it can never be discussed in isolation, I don't think. Everything has to be discussed in context of the wingers, of who's coming through the academy, of who their partners are, and uh, and so on and so forth. Brad, you, you had something else to say. I think if Smith-Rowe plays that right-hand eight, you see Bukayo Saka's goal numbers go up. I really do. Because agree, you'll yeah. have the option of putting him on lane four and putting Smith-Rowe around the outside for the overlap. And he will go from having to beat maybe two players or, you know, three to two players to literally beating two to one players. Like in a, in a move and in a moment, he will be in his danger zones. Uh, and on Fabio Vieira as well, we're not you're not wrong in saying that he's played in moments in 14 premier league appearances this season he's played 285 minutes so you're talking about three full 90s and an extra 15 so it that like it's not good enough in terms of the rotation which i think is becoming a problem um, but he, we need to start. The Europa League coming back is going to be vital for these players because I'm seeing a lot of conversation about Tierney being de- dejected. And whilst I think it's easy to agree because you know of soft factory things that we're seeing, um, if you haven't played football in such a long time, it's going to have an effect. And I wouldn't be surprised if Tierney's a bit down in the dumps. He's not played in however many games. So we we need the Europa League back to be giving these guys some minutes like as soon as possible. We've got a few more questions. We've had some questions about our left-hand side uh, from Zed Furious with a dollar sign. Left-hand side solution to Jesus is back and from Amir on our Patreon. But we have sort of covered that in the main bit of the podcast. A couple of other questions that we would love to get to, but we don't have time. Uh, Brad, this one's for you, I think. Would Emi Martinez's career at Arsenal have been more successful if we played him at number nine? That finish was class. That's from Dan. A backhanded finish. Would it? Emmy Martinez at number nine? Okay, yeah. here's a question. Emmy Martinez. Who, because remember last time I asked you who would who would score, how many would you score in City system as a striker, yeah? Right? Yeah. How many, how many clean sheets are you getting as Arsenal's number one over a season? Uh, one. George, maybe, um, maybe two. You know what? Uh, I'll probably get. Uh, I'll get two because Mikel will save me. Uh, I won't have anything to do one game just because. <laughs> this is what I mean. I'll, I think. I'll, I think structurally, yeah. it's fine. You'll you'll definitely get one or two because there's been a couple of games this season mm. where we just haven't been tested at all. Yeah. But people would just start shooting at you, Rams and now. I'd start screaming like a little girl. Yeah, people will be taking shots from. It's like the Riyad Mahrez moment against Runison, where he was just like, "It's only Runison. I'm going to stick yeah. it near post and he scores." 
no, no, that's the problem, and also the distribution, because um, I'm going to invite pressure. <laughs> I am not yeah, going to yeah, yeah. be able to, to, <laughs> yeah. to necessarily. The be high the press same would be unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Could you imagine? <laughs> force, yeah, it's head of the scouting report, force errors from keeper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just you'd have the whole of the front line just pelt straight at you every single time. Uh, boys, we've just got time. George, it's your turn to say this. So have a think about a theme. Oh, we've got theme, a... eh? No, no, wait, we've got you, we've got to do the first bit first. Brad normally goes, just got time, for a... and then Brad goes, for a little bit of Arsenal trivia, but we've just got time. For a little bit of Arsenal trivia. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Last time out, I asked you to name eight players between you from Arsenal versus Fulham, which was a 3-1 on the 24th of August, 2013. From either side, you can name a Fulham player if you want, but to name eight players from Arsenal versus Fulham working together, which was a 3-1 on the 24th of August, 2013. Chesney? Was probably I think our goalkeeper at that point. Okay, twenty thirteen. George, you're gonna you're gonna right? you're gonna take the lead on this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, After Brad's God. shambles last time. Yeah, I I bugged that massively. Okay, I'm, just, I'm just going one. position by position. Chesney. Mm. Um. Oh God, which year was that? Is that Podolski? Podolski was definitely there with. Yeah, I'm going to go with Podolski. Okay. Did they have to start or could they have just played? They uh, oh, good, started. Good, good call. Started. They started. Okay. Yep. Oh, uh, okay. I, I want to say Podolski. Um, okay, that's two. Van Persie had gone by that point, hadn't he? Hadn't he? Yeah. Yes. What season? It's twenty. We're doing 2012-13, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Ramsey. No, no, Aaron it's the thirteen. It's the thirteen fourteen season. It's the start of the thirteen fourteen season. Oh, okay. Okay, three. Start of the 13-14 season. Chesney, Ramsey, Podolski. Uh, that's three. Um, Murtasaka, surely. Sh- surely. I'm not, sa- I'm not saying whether these are right or wrong yet, by the way. Yeah. Okay, yeah. five. Oh, okay. You got five? Uh, Who did you say, George? Sanya, for sure. No, he was still around yeah. at that point. And then, yeah, because he won the FA Cup with us. Exactly. And, and then left. Uh, your boy, Theo Walcott, when was did... there, for sure. No? Yeah. Walcott, six. Kashelny? Kashelny oh, seven. Was okay, uh, and Kazorla. He's got to have been there. And Santi Kazorla eight. The starting lineup yes. from that day. Okay. You got seven out of eight. Wojciech Chesney. I'll take that. Carl Jenkinson. Per Mertesacker. Bakary Sanya at centre back. Kieran Gibbs. Aaron Ramsey. Thomas Rosicki. Santi Kazorla. Theo Walcott, a man called Olivier Giroud, and Lucas Podolski. <laughs> it was Kishelny. It was Kishelny. He must have not been bad. In- he must have been injured then. It's no, really not, not bad. bad. That was good. Quite an iconic team, that actually. Quite a lot of players who went on to do quite well for us, mm. including yeah. a lot of cult heroes. Uh, and your question for next dead. week. A lot of cult heroes. Your question for next week was uh, about Arsenal nemeses. So the likes of uh, Kevin De Bruyne, Shane Long, Didier Drogba, players who seem to do very well against Arsenal. And your question is, Didier Drogba, 
made 15 appearances against Arsenal in his career. How many goals did he score? Didier Drogba made 15 appearances against Arsenal in his career. How many goals did he score? That's appearances, not starts. And I'm looking for a number, please. George, a theme for next time, my friend. A theme for next time. Um, How about players that have come back to Arsenal and done well? Returning players to Arsenal. Yes, returning players. It could have been played for through rivals, a.k.a. sort of that at Bayor, um, but players that have returned to Arsenal, either through the team or against rivals that have played well. Okay, okay. I like it, I like it. Uh, boys, an absolute pleasure as always. Another hour and 20 minutes course, flew it, by. Just what I say, I'll throw that in. <laughs> you like the what? Um... I like his quarter zip, his jumper. It's nice. Oh, it's very nice. <laughs> I think it's only one more thing to say, right? We have to take them out of the... Uh, it, 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 the winter's kind of coming to a close, so i got to get all my quarter zips out in the moment and then uh, transition to the to the tanks that no one wants to see. Those tees that no George, one wants I, to see. <laughs> I can imagine you're really organised. Is that true? You give me organised vibes. He's a doctor, of course it's true. Uh, in my work, yes. If you saw my closet, no. It's all over the place. It's uh, it's, it's pretty bad. But in work, I'm extre- I'm post-it notes. I, I'm very organized at work. <laughs> post-it at King. Brad's really organized. Yeah. Right, we're going to go to... <laughs> as, you can, as you can see. <laughs> um, there's currently renovations going on in my room. Like... <sighs> yeah, right. Uh, lads, pleasure as always. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Keep it different, Knock. And we will see you. When are we next seeing you? We're seeing you after... Well, we'll see you for a bonus podcast midweek next week, probably on Thursday or Friday. Don't know if you mentioned this, but that's on our Patreon. Mm -hmm. And then we will see you for our instant reaction. Don't know if I mentioned this, but that's on Patreon Mm -hmm. after Leicester on the 25th. And we'll be back for a main podcast. Lads, it's £3. Just do it. It's great content. (laughs) Just do it. Go on. Thanks try for listening. It, try it. Keep Just it different, Knock, and we'll see you <laughs> later. Peace. 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 We're going to start winning again. We're going to win so much. We're going to win at every level. We're going to win economically. We're going to win with the economy. We're going to win with military. <laughs> I never noticed that. We're going to win with healthcare and for our veterans. We're going to win with every. Thank you so much for listening to The Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. Please hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using. If you'd like to support The Different Knock, you can find us on Patreon and buymeacoffee.com. We're on all social media at DiffKnock. Thanks. Podcast Network.